Good morning. I'm Brenda Talent, the CEO of the Show Me Institute. Thank you for joining us as we host a discussion that we've titled Beyond Reagan and Thatcher, the Future of Supply-Side Economics. Our moderator today will be Zach Lawhorn of Show Me Opportunity. We're very pleased and honored to have two very distinguished economists as our panelists. I'm going to give them an abbreviated introduction so we can get to the discussion as quickly as possible. Patrick Minford is a microeconomist holding the chair of Applied Economics at Cardiff University, where he directs the Julian Hodge Institute of Applied Microeconomics, which publishes forecasts and analysis of the United Kingdom and world economy. Before academic life, Patrick was an economic advisor to Her Majesty's Treasury's external division and editor of the National Institute Review. Our second panelist, Aaron Hedlund, is Show Me Institute's chief economist, an associate professor with tenure at the Mitch Daniels School of Business at Purdue University, as well as a research fellow at the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. From 2020 to 2021, Aaron was the chief domestic economist and senior advisor at the White House Council of Economic Advisors. His work has been featured in the Wall Street Journal and National Review and he's provided expert testimony on state-level policy initiatives. Patrick and Aaron, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedules to join us, and I'm gonna turn the program over to Zach. Thank you, Brenda, and yeah, I'd like to echo that. Thank you, Patrick and Aaron, for joining us today. I'd like to remind our viewers that there will be a Q&A today, and at the bottom of your screen, you'll see a Q&A box, and so if you have any questions, please submit those via that box. Um, all right, so to get started, Patrick, before we dive into the state of the UK economy and then later the US economy with Aaron, um, I was hoping you could say a few words to our viewers about your experience in the Thatcher administration. You have a long and storied career, and I think it'd be really fascinating if we could hear a little bit more about that to start today's discussion. Well, thank you, Zach. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And um, I'll let me start with a few remarks about um, Mrs. Thatcher's administration. As as probably everybody knows, she came in a time when inflation was very high in the UK and also unemployment uh, was, was very high. And uh, it got higher um, as she tried to bring inflation down by tough monetary policies, uh, so-called monetarist policies. And um, they succeeded in bringing inflation down, but the, the UK economy was in a pretty bad state in terms of competitiveness and unemployment started to rise as the medicine was applied of bringing down inflation with tighter money. And uh, it became clear that unemployment was, would, need a, would need to be cured by some tough supply side remedies to get people back to work because what, what Mrs. Thatcher and her our government were finding was that the, it it wasn't coming down naturally through the the economy coming out of the uh, the counterinflation recession. So the second phase of Mrs. Thatcher's policies, uh, which I was quite heavily involved with, trying to um, get the right uh, um, cures for, was. Uh, improving labor market incentives to get people back to work. And there was a big program of kind of making benefits much tougher to, to, so that people could only claim them if they were looking for a job. And 
that was a very important part of the process of getting Britain, Britain working again. And the third area was where Mrs. Thatcher herself was had very deep instincts, which was on entrepreneurial incentives, which is really where we are today. You know, she she was very anxious to, to turn Britain back into what she saw was it had been once a nation of entrepreneurs by creating incentives for business and bringing down corporation tax and bringing down top rates of tax from ridiculous levels like 80% to something where it would really be worthwhile to be an entrepreneur and to him uh, and to, to, to be successful in business. So I was kind of, I was fortunate to be involved in helping her in those three-sided reform programs. And perhaps that answers your question. It does. Thank you for that. So let's, let's talk about today. And I know you have some slides for us, but what's the situation as you see it today in the UK? Inflation is, is back. And um, what's the status? Well, yes, let me, let me kind of talk about that, that outlook question, because I have prepared some slides, which I thought would be helpful uh, to, to everybody if I kind of spoke about them uh, in a, uh, so I hope you can see these slides. So, yes, turning to what's going on, uh, this first slide uh, summarizes the situation. Inflation is coming down. Actually, monetary policy has been extremely tight and I think is now too tight. It's gone to negative growth, uh, broad money, so-called M4. And this is really threatening quite serious recession. And that has been backed up with enormously enormous rises in tax, which have made the outlook for long-run growth pretty poor. Corporation tax been raised to 25%. The, there's been a big policy uh, of um, not indexing the inflation, uh, the, the, the tax thresholds, income tax thresholds, or to to inflation, so that now, in the next couple of years, you're going to have about twenty five percent of UK taxpayers facing a forty percent marginal tax rate, which is dangerously high and particularly bad, I think, for entrepreneurial businesses. Um, and because of the growth, the growth rate is so. Low prospectively, owing to this these mistakes, I think in tax policy, which have destroyed business incentives essentially. Um, that actually, ironically, because this government says it's really keen to bring down debt, is going to make it very hard to bring down debt because if you kill growth, you you kill revenue growth as well, and so it it, it means that the debt ratio will tend to rise. Uh, quite dangerously in the long term. So here's a few things. So here's a chart of um, money supply growth, which is the, the 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 blue line, and you can see, or the black line rather, and you can see how that soared during the COVID period here, and really got out of control and 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 got to 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 to, to nearly twenty percent. In fact. Um, much too high, and that was a big policy mistake by the Bank of England and and the Treasury. And it the red line here is the inflationary consequence of that essentially, because 
you know, people talk about commodity prices and so forth, but if you've got a very strong monetary expansion, you're going to see inflation. As, as this chart shows, it, it comes in with a lag of about 18 months. So for, rather predictably, inflation got to be very high, reaching a peak of 11%. And then you see the trajectory of monetary policy, the, the big tightening a bit later than, the, than your U.S. Fed, which, which, which moved quite rapidly in the end to reverse engines. Here, you can see the UK was a bit slower, and, and it took a bit of time before this, this thing fell. And now it's gone right down to, to negative, which is, I think, the, the latest position of very, very tight monetary policy, which is excessively so. Just to put everything in perspective, I've got a few charts of, that's us, of money supply growth in the UK, which you've just reviewed. And then, of course, if you look at other countries, it's true, the similar sort of things happened in the US. Um, a, a very big overshoot of monetary policy growth in the uh, COVID episode. And then in Europe, which is the last chart here on the bottom, in the Eurozone, you see a very similar pattern. Not the, the numbers peak at about 13%, a bit more like the UK, unlike the, the 30% peak in the US. So you can see that across the OECD, there were these big monetary overshoots going on, and they've all now been cracked back to negative growth of money, which, of course, it, you might think, well, you've had a very high inflation. You've really got to bring money down. But there's a big risk of overkill with this sort of reaction. You know, what we need is monetary stability with keeping inflation under control, not these violent lurches in money up and down. So that's, that's really very much mirroring what's happened here. And so we've had this international experience, which is really mirrored here. Each country is slightly different in terms of leads and lags, of course, because they're all, they're all a little bit different in terms of what happened when. But the broad picture is very similar here as in the rest of uh, the developed world. So moving on to, to growth, of course, we've got this big problem of very poor productivity growth. I mean, all over the OECD, productivity growth fell after the financial crisis, but it fell worst here in the UK. And everybody knows that we had the Liz Trust government, which wanted to keep taxes down and carry out cuts. But there was massive opposition to this, this set of policies from a sort of left, a very vocal left-wing press and a bunch of think tanks, all of which were very much against it because they thought if you kept taxes down, that would lead to cuts in welfare and public spending. And so there was this huge opposition uh, around the the left wing um, common commentariat, really, and this was backed by the Treasury, the Bank of England, and the civil service, which were opposed to these policies for slightly different reasons. Uh, but they, were, of course, had the power to to derail the, the policies, which they duly used. And then, as the policies. Um, met this opposition, this was joined by the Tory party itself, where the left of the Tory party didn't, didn't like the consequences of these policies. 
there were mistakes made, but the key point, I think, to grasp is that the Bank of England, in fact, had the power to, to, to calm the, the markets by, first of all, being quicker about reversing its very f- uh, substantial monetary expansion. And secondly, uh, when the markets overshot by raising long-run interest rates really much too much compared with what bank, the bank uh, policies uh, justified, the Bank of England refused, first of all, um, facing a pension fund crisis because as the, uh, as the interest rates rose, the pension funds had, had, got, had, had invested very heavily in gilt-edged government securities for uh, regulative reasons and then had, had, had tried to improve their returns by um, investing very much more heavily in the gilt-edged market and protecting themselves by derivative uh, by derivatives but as as the market rates rose these derivatives had to be backed up by more and more uh, collateral and this in turn meant that they had to sell these gilts worsening the situation the bank of england duly stepped in to um to 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 resolve this crisis by buying gilts but uh, they refused to carry on with that policy for more than a few days, uh, which meant that the, the trust government was left in a very parlous situation with uh, this opposition pointing to them as the cause of, of um, you know, a, a big crisis for, for mortgage holders. So this, this then led to the derailing of popular support, really, for the government. So this is a story, really of the trust government's implosion, very much, I think, brought about by this huge opposition um, supported by the civil servants uh, who, who really shouldn't have been doing that. Um, so what has this government of, of Rishi Sunak that succeeded the list trust government done? Well, it's, it's really bought into the idea that because it was impossible to keep taxes low. They had to raise taxes. They claimed that the fall of the trust government demonstrated that markets would not tolerate any sort of borrowing. And so they went hell for leather towards raising taxes with the two things I've talked about, the, the corporation tax rise, which is a tragic mistake in my view, because this is the key, this is the key tax for business. And then this indexation failure to index tax thresholds, which have meant this huge rise in marginal tax rates. And these both are fatal for entrepreneurial incentives. And if you're going to get productivity growth going, it has to be from entrepreneurs, um, you know, taking time and energy to, to improve their businesses. And if you cut off their incentives, you're not going to get that improvement. You're not going to get that entrepreneurial energy. And that's exactly what the Sunak government unfortunately now has done. And it's, it's not, it is, of course, supply side mistake because here, but here the supply side is about entrepreneurial energy and so productivity growth, um, which is a rather different supply side from the sort of 
um, effect on labor supply that we're used to thinking about, you know, marginal tax rates changing labor supply and effort. This is much more directly the effect on entrepreneurial uh, innovation. And that has, according to our calculations in our model of regional and national growth, which we've estimated on the UK economy, um, uh, responsible for reducing growth by about 2%, which basically eliminating the, the growth that we, we might have had. So this is really the story. And as I just said, I won't go through it again, the trust government meltdown, which led to the Sunak government, was mainly due to these this Bank of England policies that I talked about earlier. So where are we now? Well, um, here's the picture for for GDP. It's basically this line here. As you can see, flattening off with virtually no growth at all. The growth we've got is some modest rises in labor supply as people come back from COVID, we hope. Um, and uh, it's it's not enough to amount to steady growth, which is what we need from productivity. And here's the picture of the, the debt to GDP ratio that results from these policies. This black line is, is um, uh, what, what, what's happening in the baseline, you see, with these taxes going up. Debt, the debt to GDP ratio comes down a bit in the short run, but then starts to, to, to zoom on up as the growth stops and the revenues uh, the revenues fail to grow, and so debt rises steadily. And if you kept with the trust scenario of the lower, lower taxes and the indexing of the tax thresholds, you'd have had this picture here. Debt rises a bit in the short run as you finance, you know, these, these lower tax taxes, these, these lower than otherwise taxes by borrowing in the short run. But then debt comes down as growth, as growth proceeds. Uh, the debt ratio comes down healthily, as you can see here from the, the red scenario. So that's the, that's the burden of my song, basically. We've, we've gone for tax rises to improve, uh, the, to, to avoid borrowing, and the result is more borrowing long term. Uh, than we would have had if we'd been sensible and kept taxes down, as supply side suggests. So this really um, is where we are. We've had excessively tight monetary policy. Inflation is coming down predictably as a result, but now we've got excessive. Now we've got this excessively tight monetary policy threatening recession, and fiscal policy through these high tax rates is is hurting growth long-term and give, pu pushing us into a cul-de-sac where the debt ratio won't improve. Uh, it'll, get, it'll get steadily worse. And what we should be doing really now is to lower taxes, to raise growth, and finance it in the short term by borrowing, and then let the growth proceed to keep the debt ratio down in the long term. So uh, this has been criticized this idea on the grounds that, you know, markets won't tolerate it because, you know, they'll fear insolvency. Well, this is absolute nonsense. The UK has never gone insolvent any more than the US has because, of course, you know, it's a crazy thing to do. You, you must always pay your bills in the long run. And 
the market is pretty clear about that. The credit default swap rates show pretty clearly that there's no currency, no current solvency problem for the UK. And the, the rest of the slide really talks, talks us through how you maintain solvency. It's a long-run condition. It's not a short-run condition. You do it by maintaining growth and making sure that debt comes down in the long run through growth and um, uh, higher taxes. You don't do it by killing off the economy. And uh, the markets, in fact, are quite happy to go with that. You can see even the, 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 the great opponents of, of, of growth and the supply side, uh, and therefore of the trust government, say, oh, that the trust uh, government lost all confidence in the markets. But you can see that the CDS rate, which kind of summarizes market confidence, um, did rise a bit during the trust period to, to 40 basis points. But then, you know, that's, that's not much to, to write home about. It's, it's not a very bad 40 basis points is nothing. And you compare it with, 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 it's about the same as Canada is today, which is about 39 basis points. So it never really in the trust government got worse than, than Canada, which is not really exactly a basket case, is it? So, and you can see that obviously the markets are pretty calm at the moment about credit default swaps for the UK. Um, so they haven't yet caught up with the very long, the long run um, bad situation, but they will in due course, I can be sure. We can be sure of that. And so if you look at the latest CDS rates, yes, where there's no real, there's the United States on 20 basis points. There's us on about 30 basis points. There's Canada, as I said, on about 39, about as the worst case in the trust scenario. So there's no real panic in the markets about uh, British um, debt. And it'd be perfectly reasonable to take a mature and calm view of the potential for the government to, to borrow to keep taxes down. Here's the history of the UK, actually. I mean, if you really want to see bad debt ratios, go back to the post after the Napoleonic Wars. This is the UK's debt ratio then. It's over, over about 200% of GDP. And, you know, you have to go to the end of the Second World War to see similar similar ratios, but it, it shows you that, that actually you don't have to panic when you've got these ratios. You can take your time bringing them down and you, you won't lose the, the, the faith of the markets. And this shows the long period of Victorian history, well, how long it took to get the debt ratio down. And similarly, after the Second World War, how long it took, it, took to, to get it down. And this idea that you've got to panic and stop debt ratios um, ever, uh, once they get to high levels, getting them down smartly is, is a mistake because, of course, it leads to very bad policies, as we're seeing now. And this really just really, um, I, I'll, I'll skip over this and go to uh, the, the summary. These are the slides which you, you're welcome to, to circulate. Just uh, spell out those arguments I've just made in a little in in, uh, in in more detail. So summing up, we're in a very bad place, I'm afraid, on the outlook. We've, we've got very poor growth outlook. Inflation's coming down, but the monetary policy 
has been very unstable and has moved into overkill from a situation where it was much too stimulative. And so we've had very bad monetary policy. Inflation's now coming down, and it's very likely it will come, come down further and stay down with this very tight monetary environment that's excessively so. And the big problem that we face now is not inflation, I think, but the very poor tax policies that we've uh, gone into, which have made entrepreneurial incentives very bad indeed and are underpinning a very poor growth outlook. And that really needs to be reversed as soon as possible for us to get out of this cul-de-sac. So I think that that's enough for me. Um, and I'll, I'll exit from my slides. So Great. I hope uh, that thank you. clarifies where I think we are. And it's not a good place, I'm afraid. I wish I could bring better news. Well, thank you for that. And I do want to move on, Aaron, but one quick follow-up. You mentioned a couple times during your presentation your thoughts that monetary policy is too tight, too restrictive. The BOE was the first major central bank to start hiking interest rates back at the end of 2021. In the U.S., the the Federal Reserve keeps using this phrase, higher for longer. So my question to you is, do you think the BOE is done? And if they are done, do you think they have the same posture of higher for longer? Well, who knows what the BOE will actually do? Uh, they, <clears throat> If one judges from uh, Andrew Bailey's statements, <clears throat> it seems that they very worried still about wage increases, which I think is the wrong way to think about inflation. And what, what we've seen is we've had an inflation that's been led by money and wage increases have simply responded to uh, this unexpected inflation by trying to catch up. So I think the Bank of England are much too uh, concerned about the uh, wage increases uh, fueling inflation. And I think they've done enough. Now, they are saying still through Andrew Bailey, the, the governor, that they may stay higher for longer. But I think they've over-egged the, the omelette. I think they've overkilled, and they will be, find themselves facing quite a bad recession and needing to cut rates. And I think they will find that wage pressures will go away pretty soon once inflation is down, because the, the catch-up that you know, workers had to do uh, to, to get back into equilibrium will have finished, and uh, that, that won't be the threat to inflation that they, they think it is. All right. Thank you. Uh, Aaron, moving to the U.S., um, it's been said, and I think it was a saying that was thrown around a lot during the GFC, but uh, the American economy is the best house in a bad neighborhood. So in your opinion, um, how bad is the neighborhood right now? And I guess, what are your thoughts on the house that is the U.S. economy? Well, I wouldn't be a buyer right now, uh, but I do think the U.S. has some fundamental strengths, maybe even relative to the U.K. I mean, we still are kind of the, the leading economy in the world, and, and that does buy some advantages. But what we don't have is good policy. So, um, you know, I also, I guess, in, in the spirit of being an economist, I, I have some some slides as well that I can share with folks just to kind of give a kind of a brief survey of, of where we are. And so let me go ahead and do that. Okay. 
So just as like kind of a highlight from where we are, and then we can you know jump into really what is the the essence of supply side economics. We're still in this inflation episode. That that is really the the driver of, of a lot of our angst right now is is the fact that about a year ago inflation hit a forty year high. The question is why did inflation hit a forty year high? Well, we can see from the data the not coincidental timing of this. So we had 2020, which was a very peculiar year, to put it mildly, with COVID. And the economy was shut down. Federal government spent a lot of money to kind of prevent waves of bankruptcies and things from happening. Then the economy reopened. And what happened as we went into 2021 was that GDP declined by almost about over a 30% in quarter two of 2020. But then it recovered by over 30% in quarter three. So by the time we were entering 2021, GDP was actually pretty much back on track. And if you look at inflation, inflation was still hanging around 2% or a little bit lower than that. Nevertheless, when the new administration took over, they decided then was the time to spend another two plus two plus trillion dollars, quote unquote, rescuing the economy, even though the economy didn't need rescuing. So what we instead got after the passage of that law, which was the American Rescue Plan Act, was this surge of inflation, which ended up topping, you know, close to double digits. And the Federal Reserve, as well as many people, initially said, well, this is just temporary. Maybe it's supply chain issues. It'll kind of go away. And when that didn't happen nearly as quickly as people were saying, eventually, towards the end of 2021, the Fed realized, okay, we've got to take action. And they announced kind of a pivot in what they were going to do. And what you saw over the course of 2022 was delayed, but once it started, very rapid interest rate increases by the Fed. And then you saw inflation start to cool off. Uh, unfortunately, inflation still sitting at core inflation, which is kind of stripping out a couple of things that are very volatile, still sitting around 4%. And the typical target the Fed goes for is more like 2%. So we're still really hanging about twice what the target is. And if you look at cumulatively, because this is what really matters to people, is prices have gone up by about 18% since 2021. And wages have not gone up by 18%. So in fact, purchasing power has fallen by about $4,000 compared to its peak in 2019. And this is where, this is why people are still feeling this pinch. And by the way, again, when you talk about the timing, whenever you hear alternative stories like, oh, is the Putin price hike, kind of a baloney narrative, because if you look at even gas prices, those had gone up considerably between the new administration and before Putin even invaded Ukraine. So these are things that are driven by a number of other policy factors, including kind of an anti-energy agenda. Um, and then this is what I'm showing you here. When I talk about this kind of stimulus bill that was passed in 2021 and $2 trillion of spending, that went into people's pockets. And in some sense, you could imagine some people would find that popular because they like getting checks from the government. And you saw a surge in checking account balances because of that. The problem is there was not an expansion in the productive capacity of the economy to meet that demand. In fact, there was the opposite. There were various things that were disincentivizing work. So what you saw is all these checking accounts got flush. When people then spend that money without there being an increase in productive capacity, it drives up prices. So kind of pivoting away from inflation for the moment, let's think about the labor market. Well, again, Unemployment was already rapidly declining going into this 2021 stimulus bill. Uh, and in fact, one of the 
major policy errors that were in that law was continued extension of overly generous unemployment benefits. And what you saw is that eventually, several months later, some states kind of stopped participating in that. And that's when their unemployment rate started to decline even faster than the ones that did not. So what about housing? Right, housing is something that a lot of people have noticed is a real big problem right now because mortgage rates have gone up a lot. Well, the reason for mortgage rates going up from 3% to almost touching 8%, now they've, they've come back down a little bit, but they're still above 7 is again because of inflation. And this inflation being driven by this kind of debt finance spending that ended up essentially injecting a bunch of money into the economy. Now, that does not, however, mean that the housing market, the residential housing market, is likely to hit some kind of big crisis like we saw back in the mid-2000s. So even though we have this huge increase in interest rates, one big difference is that in the mid-2000s, a lot of people had adjustable rate loans. So if you were already in your house and you had a mortgage and then interest rates went up by several percentage points, suddenly the bank knocks on the door and says you owe a lot more money. Nowadays, over 90% of people are in fixed rate loans. So if you're already in your house, the higher mortgage rates just mean you're not going to move. You're going to be stuck there. And that's why there's so few, that's why housing inventory is so low right now. Uh, but it does mean that mortgage default and the residential side is likely not a problem. You know, another big difference with the housing market is that you know, because of kind of changes in the marketplace and also some regulatory changes, really risky borrowers are kind of not in the market at all. Uh, and the average credit score of people taking out mortgages is much higher than it was in the mid-2000s because people with lower credit have essentially been filtered out of the market. They're just not able to get loans. And therefore, debt relative to income, which you see in the top panel, is also lower than it had been, although you do see it's you know it's increased a little bit over the past decade. And just as kind of another way of showing this credit score issue, what this graph is showing here is how much mortgage debt is being issued to people by different credit score bins. And what you see during COVID was this massive surge in mortgage debt. People are taking out tons of loans and buying up houses, but it's almost entirely driven by people with 760 plus credit scores, so very high credit score people, uh, and sort of a modest increase from people with 720 to 760. You look at people with credit less than 720, and you see it's very low. There's not many of those people in the market. And uh, people below 660, it's almost none of them are in the mortgage market. You know, you go back to the mid-2000s, you see a much kind of larger population of people with less than 720 taking out mortgages. Um, and again, exotic mortgages are essentially gone. Low-doc, low no-doc loans, kind of crazy loans, those are not around anymore. So it's really painful for people who are wanting to get into the housing market and buy a house but I don't think we're going to see some major crash like we saw uh, a while ago. That being said, the commercial market is, is really where a lot, a lot of policymakers are concerned because unlike residential mortgages, many commercial mortgages on office buildings and otherwise, those are shorter loan terms. And at the end of the loan term, the, the borrower, essentially the owner of the, of the loan and the owner of the building, has to roll over that debt into a new loan. So if you've got someone who, let's say, built an apartment complex or an office building and took out a bunch of debt at 3 or 4%, and now that loan is coming due and they have to roll over to a new loan at much higher rates, they may not be able to afford that new loan. And if they were to try to sell the property, well, if it's an office 
building where vacancy rates are much higher than they were because of remote work, then they may not be able to sell the property for as high of a value either, or banks won't appraise it for as much. So there definitely is some pain in the commercial real estate market, particularly in the office space. And that's going to be something that we're going to see how that, how that unfolds. But commercial, smaller banks are going to be exposed. I don't, again, I don't see a humongous economic crisis coming from that, but I, I do see that the potential for pain. Let's switch to gears to recession now, right? What we have seen over the past month plus has been a lot of crowing by the media and uh, the, the left side of the political spectrum that, oh, GDP growth is strong in the U.S. Things are great. This is proof that, quote unquote, Bidenomics is working. And it really comes down to looking at this third quarter GDP number, which was, superficially speaking, a pretty good number. The problem is when you look under the hood, it was driven almost entirely by consumer spending. And the consumer spending was driven almost entirely by the fact that people are exhausting their savings. If you look at that $2 trillion plus dollars of excess savings that people built up in their checking accounts from government checks, that has almost entirely evaporated, according to the latest analysis from the San Francisco Fed. So you combine the fact that that excess savings is gone. Student loan repayment is resuming, as it should be. Interest rates are still high. So anyone taking on debt or rolling over debt has much more expensive doing that. And you look at the fact that other components of the GDP report were pretty weak, like investment. To me, a slowdown of some form is inevitable through the end of this year and especially into, the, into 2024. Now, whether we literally get into recession territory or not is yet to be seen, but we're definitely going to be in slow growth territory. And you see in this graph towards the bottom just how much consumer debt is rising. Consumer debt is $17 trillion. Credit card debt alone is over a trillion dollars. If you And by the way, if that was fueled by strong incomes where people are able to afford the payments, maybe it's not a huge deal. The problem is if you look at delinquencies, which is what this graph is showing, focus your attention on this kind of dark blue curve. You see credit card delinquencies are rapidly rising. Right? They're not tremendously high in an absolute level. They're still much below what they were during the great financial crisis, but they are higher than they were in 2019, 2018, at any time since basically 2011. And the steep slope is very concerning. Um, so what about now the, the kind of the federal debt picture? Well, that's not good either, right? We, we saw some graphs from Patrick, uh, kind of very long-term graphs looking at the UK and and the impact of wars on debt. Well, this is showing the US. We see World War II, you had basically debt, federal debt was essentially 100% of the economy. It was, it was equal to the size of the economy. We are now back to 100% debt to, to GDP ratios, but we're not fighting a war. So this is a big problem, especially if we do enter a war. So, and, and not only not only that, but for a long time, we had very low interest rates. Now interest rates are high. That means it's going to cost a lot more to service that debt. So that naturally brings up the question, well, if debt is high, does that mean tax revenues need to be raised? Well, no. So first of all, you can see that the deficit, the annual contribution to the debt is tremendously high now. In fact, the deficit this year is twice what it was last year. And again, we're not in a recession. We're, we're going to have almost a $2 trillion deficit. That's just one year addition to the debt. Where is it coming from? Well, if we look at revenues as a percentage of GDP, they kind of wiggle around, but they're remarkably stable in the U.S. federal revenues at around 17 to 18% of GDP. 
Revenues have not declined. That is not the reason for the surge in debt. The reason for the surge in debt is a massive explosion in spending. Some of that stuff was supposed to be temporary during COVID. A lot of it has been made permanent, and that is a major problem. We see this extreme balloon in spending during COVID. What we should be seeing is it's going right back down, and it's not. So combine that with the fact that interest rates are high and not likely to go much lower all that soon. And I do see some pain ahead. And I think the solution to that is supply-side policies. And I look forward to discussing what precisely supply-side really means and what that could look like. Thank you for that, Aaron. Um, yeah, so I do want to get to one viewer question real quick before we dive deeper into supply side. And actually, this question might lead you there. Um, I want to start with Patrick on this. So you've both talked a lot about debt in your respective countries. And you, Aaron, you just talked a lot about revenues. What about spending? Do you, either of you, and Patrick, I want to hear your answer first. Do you have hope? Are you optimistic that spending will actually be reined in to reduce deficits and it's not just a, a, a revenue picture? You're Patrick, muted. I think you're muted. All right. Yes. Uh, so, well, I mean, there's considerable difficulties about about this because um, spending on, on certain areas like health and education very important to growth and the supply side. So. Uh, I think that the key to all this in the UK is is growth, and uh, pay for the necessary the necessary baseline growth in public spending. Unfortunately, um, if you go back to the to the period after the financial crisis, uh, the, the government at the time. Panicked a lot about debt and uh, pursued austerity policies, which were very counterproductive uh, to to the growth environment, um, and led to a lot of difficulties. So, I think that one has to remember that that public spending is 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 a necessary part of the picture if conducted in a in a kind of basic. Um, growth supporting way and the main the main areas where public spending needs to be cut are in welfare payments and the sort of handouts that have have had a very negative effect on labor supply uh, that's been the problem and i think in a way that you can see in the us too um the, it's very hard to reverse these welfare payments but that's a really important thing to do in order to get people back to work we've had we've now got 22% of the population not wanting to be in the labor market um, because of uh, various reasons, uh, disability, illness, and so on. But we've, we've had a huge rise in welfare benefits that kind of subsidize that. And that's having to be, that's the most serious part of the public spending picture that needs to be cut back. How about you, Aaron? So we're less than a year away from a presidential election in the U.S., and we all know the programs that would have the most impact on um, reducing spending. And those also happen to be things that are 
politically toxic. So what are your thoughts? Are you optimistic, hopeful, short-term, medium-term, long-term on an actual reduction in spending? Well, I think there's, yeah, there's short-term versus long-term. So I think the short-term thing actually doesn't even have to directly address entitlement programs. I think that's something we need to address in the, very rapidly. But I think let's let's start with the fact that spending as a percentage of GDP is still much higher now than it was in 2019. And almost you know, very little of that is due to entitlements. That is due to a surge in spending that happened during COVID that is still too high. And I think we should start by going back to 2019 levels of spending. You can adjust it for inflation, but you should go back to that size of government. Of course, it'd be great to shrink it even, even more than that. Let's at least start there. And as far as the long-term goes, let's get serious. Like we cannot ignore the entitlement situation. And by the way, there's there's many ways to solve those problems. It's not just about taking a meat cleaver to the programs in the way that the boogeyman left will, will try to paint that as. And in fact, the reality is we need to talk about what the status quo truly is. And the status quo for something like social security is that if we don't touch it, if we leave it exactly alone right now, then by law, when it runs out of, like when it goes into the red, there will be automatic 24% across the board cuts with no phase-in period. So we're talking about 85-year-olds who are dependent on it are going to have massive cuts to what they're receiving. And that's if we do nothing. I don't think anybody thinks that's a good solution. So the question is, what are the solutions? Well, I can't get into all of that. But if you focus just, for example, on jacking up taxes to close the gap that's created by entitlements, then you cannot jack up taxes just on the rich. You would have to tremendously raise taxes on the middle class to a level that Americans have never been accustomed to. I mean, it's something that would be completely foreign to them. And uh, you would also cause a massive slowdown in growth. So the reality is we need to figure out how do we reform and save these programs for the people who need them? And then, and then also for much younger generations, help get it on a much more sustainable path. Thank you, Patrick. A viewer question for you. Um, do you think the principles of the Austrian school still hold any sway in uh, policymaking or uh, academics or has MMT kind of won the day? No, definitely not. Um, uh, I think that well, the Austrian school uh, are, are fundamentally uh, correct about the need to, to have the capital market operate uh, efficiently and without um, without distortion. And I think we've had a big lesson in this, actually, which has been the zero interest rate period. You know, uh, central banks, um, after uh, after the financial crisis, were, were freed up to print money on a massive scale. And because the, we, they, they got very complacent about this because it didn't fuel inflation. But the irony was, the reason it didn't fuel inflation is because the banks were stopped from lending. Uh, banks were, in any case, in a bad shape after the crisis. And also regulation was tightened substantially. So that when the Fed and uh, the Bank of England and, uh, and the ECB all started printing money like Billy O, actually money supply growth didn't didn't grow very much so there wasn't much of an inflationary effect 
But they kept on printing money. And as they did it, they bought more and more government bonds and drove interest rates down to zero, pretty much, by during that uh, post-financial crisis period. So interest rates went to zero, which is very unhealthy and very unhealthy for the capital market. And that's a key sort of central point in the Austrian approach to the economy. If you make capital cost zero, <laughs> you, you'll you'll create enormous distortions in who uses capital. You'll get zombie firms, you'll get a breakdown of competition because big firms will be able to get capital much too cheaply and be able to expand and, and dominate their industries much more. And that's we've seen all of this happening. And, and then during COVID, that was repeated. And this time it produced inflation for the sort of reasons that, you know, um, we've both been talking about. So uh, with lack of supply due to the supply chains being poleaxed by, by, by the COVID um, policies and combined with massive monetary and fiscal expansion. So I think the Austrians are completely right that we, we, should, we should never again allow interest rates to go to zero uh, because it's very, very bad for capitalism. Aaron, how have the last 15 years, or I guess have the last 15 years, changed your mind at all about supply-side economics? If you could talk to 2007 pre-GFC Aaron Hedlund, and now it's post-GFC, post-pandemic inflation, what, what, if anything, has changed in your thinking about supply-side? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting because that phrase supply-side has now been around since the 1980s. And in my mind, it's a broader definition than how it's typically used. So I'd say it's typically used to describe a particular set of policies like reducing marginal tax rates and, and deregulation, which by the way, I think are very positive policies. And I think those are good examples of supply side. But fundamentally, what I think of, of supply side is it's really just about enhancing and expanding a country's productive economic capacity by unleashing the full potential of its workers, its inventors, its entrepreneurs, and the industrial mind of its businesses. So when I think of then the question is, how do you do that? And in fact, some on the left have even kind of tried to co-opt the term supply side, just kind of rebrand their own their own policies, but, but it's kind of nonsense the way they do it. So when I think about things like marginal tax rates being reduced, why would you do that? Well, because if you, in, if you allow people to keep more of the fruits of their own labor, then they can do more and they have an incentive to do more. I think one thing that has changed now versus the 1980s is where those incentives and, and where that productive capacity is most constrained and punished the most. I think if you look in the early 1980s, the, the top tax rate in the U.S. was 70%, the top income tax rate was 70%. Uh, and, and by the way, it was, it was in the 90s before JFK cut it. So supply side is not about Republican versus Democrat. You had, JFK was implementing some supply side policies in some ways. Um, but then what you saw under Reagan was that ultimately that top rate fell to 28%. And it's crept up a little bit into the upper 30s since then, but it's still nowhere near what it was. Now, that being said, for some people, especially if you live in California or New York, when you add up all the, the taxes, I mean, some people are paying over 50 cents on the dollar, and that's deeply problematic. But to me, supply side is not just about the top marginal rate. In fact, if you look at people who are around the, the poverty line, or 150% of the poverty line, or a little below the poverty line, 
Turns out that there's a large chunk of people that if you add up their income tax rate, their payroll tax rate, and also the basically the penalty against work from the withdrawal of government benefits, right? Because there's many government benefits that are means tested. And sometimes if you earn a little bit more money, you rapidly lose those benefits. And when you add all those things up, which are really a penalty against work, for some people, it can approach 100%. And in fact, there was an analysis done that for a large chunk of people, if you if you make about close to $30,000, and let's say you get a raise to 35 or 40 or 45 or 60, uh, you will end up no, you will not end up ahead at all because all those pay increases will be offset by reductions elsewhere. So to me, that is a supply side crisis because if supply side is about expanding our productive capacity, we are massively penalizing people from getting on that economic ladder and climbing that economic ladder. So to me, that's the, that's the big change is that you have a, a broader set of people now that are being hurt. Um, and, it, and it's not just about taxes. We can look at other government programs. We can also look at, you know, how can we uh, deal with our, our trade policy more effectively, uh, you know, recognizing the fact that there's kind of malign actors that uh, we need to recognize as such. Uh, but I think when we go to, according to that definition, there's a lot more we can do. I mean, that, that's one thing. When I'm, I'm very much an optimist in the long term when it comes to economic growth, because fundamentally, really every one of us, and I think you know, certain segments of the population more so than others are for sure not living up to their full potential. And I don't say that as a way to blame them, but when you see the massive opioid crisis that's going on right now, that is massive human potential that is not being realized. And if we can just figure out how to untap it, growth could really skyrocket. So Patrick, we've been talking about one way or another recessions globally and in, in the US and UK for 18 months, two years now. Um, do you think that the different calls on recessions, the variety in the, the timetable is because economic forecasting is really hard? Or do you think this time is really different, that the pandemic and all of the money sloshing around really did change the uh, usefulness of some of the economic indicators that have pr traditionally been used to look ahead and forecast recessions? Well, I think that's a good point. Um, the, the, the ability to forecast recessions has been terrible this, this time around. And, but I think, um, in fact, you know, uh, that Aaron showed how, uh, in his slides, how there's been this huge saving as a result of a lot of people had all these checks and so forth given to them during COVID. And that was saved, essentially, and has frustrated the recession story, I think, which if you look at the way monetary policies evolved, we should have a we should have a pretty bad recession by now. But in fact, it's been it's been um, uh, offset by this very hard to read post covid savings uh, um, deployment, which has, I think, stopped. It's meant the consumer spending being much, ex much, much more expansionary than was expected. Uh, and that, I think, is just that it'd been very, very hard to read the whole COVID episode. And I think it's caught, it's caught most forecasters out quite badly. All right. We do have time for one more question. Aaron, 
last uh, question to you. So when you look to the future of supply side economics, um, you go to a lot of conferences, you talk to a lot of people. Uh, what are your thoughts about the the long-term future of supply side theory? Well, I think we have to do a much better job describing it and selling it uh, because I think the data speaks for itself. So when we look at 2017, for example, uh, there had been a bunch of forecasts since we were just discussing forecasts of what the economy would do that, that these forecasts occurred in 2016. The Federal Reserve did it, the Congressional Budget Office, and they were predicting that the economy was going to kind of stagnate. Unemployment was going to kind of flatline, maybe even slightly rise. And what you saw was when there was the passage of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which was a very big supply side move on the corporate side and some modest improvements on the household side. What you saw after that was the economy definitively outperformed what those projections were. And what you saw was the biggest income growth we had had in a very long time. In fact, I'd have to go back. I don't even know how far I have to go back to find that sort of income growth. You saw purchasing power go up by about $6,000 over the couple of years after the passage of that, that tax reform. And you saw poverty rates go to the historic lows, et cetera. I, I just can spend quite a bit of time going over that record. So I think going forward, there's still a lot of potential to do more. Right? We need tax reform 2.0. We need to reform the safety net so that it's something that actually people helps people bounce back and not get trapped in, in a government dependency cycle. We need reforms to entitlements to encourage saving, encourage investment, encourage labor force participation, and avoid insolvency. So I think we can achieve all these kinds of things, but we do need to talk about the issue in a broader way and connect the dots for people. Great. Well, Patrick, Aaron, thank you both very much. And Brenda, I will turn it back over to you. Well, I'll echo what you just said, Zach. Um, thank you, Patrick and Aaron, for a very interesting discussion. And I want to thank all of you who joined us today. Best wishes for the coming holiday season and the new year. Thank you.